So let's go on to your next patient. So the 75-year-old female hypertensive adult onset diabetic who on a routine annual exam had a chest x-ray which was abnormal with a subsequent CAT scan showing a right hilar mass with subsequent bronchoscopy and an EUS biopsy showing adenocarcinoma. She was a former smoker who discontinued tobacco 47 years prior. A subsequent PET-CT done on July 5th of this year showed her right hilar mass, and it was really surrounding the bifurcation of the right upper and right middle lobes. She subsequently underwent a right pneumonectomy, showing poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma at the right hilum, 4.5 centimeters, with multiple positive right paratracheal and hilar nodes with a very close soft tissue margin. Her soft tissue margin was less than one millimeter. All of her mutation studies were negative. Did you hear about this case, or were you involved with her before she had the surgery? No. Kind of interesting, Rogerio, pneumonectomy, 75-year-old lady. Any thoughts about that? No, yes, we talked about this in this case, and also in another patient who also had a pneumonectomy. My sense from our conversation, and we didn't look at the images, was that this tumor was quite central and could not be resected with an R0 resection unless a pneumonectomy was performed. And, you know, as you look at the morbidity from pneumonectomy by age and otherwise healthy people like this patient, what kind of numbers do you have in your mind in terms of, you know, major and minor problems? So I think that depends on the thoracic surgeon or the thoracic surgery program and the institution in which these procedures are performed. I think, again, in the absence of pre-op therapy, so these are individuals who have a pneumonectomy up front, the mortality, even though much higher than what it would be for a lobectomy, is still below 5%. Morbidity, however, can be significant, again, depending on the selection of patients. And I think we talked about this in this particular patient some of the issues that she currently is experiencing still has something to do with her pneumonectomy. So this lady at 75 gets through her surgery. What was seen pathologically in terms of staging? So she had two out of 15 hilar nodes were positive, and she had one level three right paratracheal node, three other mediastinal nodes, including two paratracheal and one subcarinal were negative. Her hilar mass was 4.5 centimeters, and all her mutation studies were negative. She had a very good postoperative recovery, and today she was in for her third cycle of adjuvant pemetrexate and cisplatin with a plan to complete one more cycle. So the big question for her is really the role of radiation for N2 disease in general, particularly post-pneumonectomy, and for her with her close margin. She had a soft tissue margin of less than one millimeter. So how about that Rogerio radiation therapy? So this you know, remains controversial. We talked about some of the studies early this morning. We don't have a definitive answer to this question. And to be honest with you, Neil, I think the decisions on this subject are very much based on institutional biases. And some of these patients actually will go to different institutions for additional opinions and will hear that this is probably one issue in which medical oncologists tend to agree less in terms of management of non-small cell lung cancer. But, so it's been our policy, so to speak, to recommend post-operative radiation therapy 
to most patients with N2 disease. And I think the data that we use is the subset analysis of the ANITA trial, one of the largest adjuvant trials performed in Europe. And when they analyzed the N2 subset, they actually saw a survival advantage for those who received radiation therapy versus those who did not. Again, this is a retrospective analysis and a subset analysis, but it's valuable data. And the difference was not insignificant between those two subsets. So I do believe that for N2 disease, there is a role for postoperative radiation therapy. Obviously, we never recommend for patients with N1 disease, and in those patients, it can be detrimental. This patient is even more complicated in the sense that the margin was less than one millimeter, and I think that alone, you know, would make us somewhat uncomfortable. And so I think the recommendation for radiation therapy is appropriate. What was your reaction to that recommendation, and what was the discussion like? Well, interesting, Neil, because at the time we presented her at our Institutional Thoracic Tumor Board, you know, our thoracic surgeons who are excellent, excellent, outstanding, they do VATS procedures, they're well-trained, I'd stack them up against any surgeons really anywhere, they're somewhat reticent to do radiation therapy after they've done pneumonectomies. I mean, they're especially reticent after chemo rads, but somewhat reticent after radiation after pneumonectomy because they're worried about the stomp and a dehiscence. And that's just their bias. That's been part of their experience. I've been to meetings where at other institutions, you know, they're less concerned about that issue. So our surgeons had planted in her mind that there was probably not going to be a role for radiation. So when Rogerio and I went in and spoke to her today about it, you know, she was a little surprised, a little taken back. I mean, she's dealing with, you know, a fair amount of fatigue and a little bit of stress from her chemotherapy right now. So we broached it, put it out there, saying it's something we're going to think about. We'll talk about it when we're done with chemo. We'll certainly represent it at our tumor board. And I sort of left it out there for her because I see she was, could see she was angsting about it a bit. What were her concerns specifically? Just more treatment, more toxicity, more treatment, more fatigue. I mean, I think she's a woman who's anxious to get closure on her treatment, get over her treatment-related fatigue, and move on. Who was with her today, if anybody? Her husband. And can you talk a little bit about the decision to use cysts in a 75-year-old woman? And Pema Trek said, what went into that decision, and how did she tolerate it? Another good issue that Rogero and I spoke about, I mean, just in a generic way, the idea is cysts a better drug than carbo. And in the adjuvant, potentially curative setting, it's sort of been my bias over the years listening to many of the thought leaders out there that there seems to be somewhat of a consensus that in that setting, cis is a better drug. And I guess I come from the Dick Rolla school of looking at all these meta-analysis and going back over all these studies and having him sort of inbred into me that cis is probably a marginally better drug than carboplatin. And so you're right. I mean, I have a low threshold in this woman based on toxicity to switching her to carbo. Rogerio and I spoke about, and she's getting a little beat up, not so much from nausea, vomiting, and acute toxicities from her cysts, but really just the fatigue factor. The fatigue factor is wearing her down. And so we'll see. I think after today's treatment, if we need to dose attenuate for that fourth cycle and or switch to carbo, we'll sort of make that decision at the time. But in general, I prefer cyst to carbo in the adjuvant setting. 
So, Rogerio, what about the platinum partner? In this case, Pemetrexa. There was some data presented, a really interesting study at ASCO. I think it's called the TREAT study that looked mainly, actually, they mainly reported toxicity comparing, I think it was cis bean and cis Pemetrexa. Yeah, so the TREAT trial was actually a phase two randomized trial from Germany that looked at cis bean, which is still considered by many as the standard adjuvant regimen versus cisplatin pemetrexid and demonstrated what you know many of us already suspected that cis pemetrexid is much more tolerable than cisphenorobine in terms of adverse events in terms of discontinuation rates and other important toxicities dose intensity etc there were a variety of parameters that the german investigators looked at in that study, and all of them were more favorable in the cis-pemetrexid arm. And even though the follow-up was relatively short and the main primary endpoint of the trial was not survival or an efficacy standpoint, there didn't seem to be any significant difference between the regimens, at least so far. So I think that we will see a very substantial and robust shift in the United States even within the context of 1505, for example, towards cisplatin and pemetrexid. In fact, at that same meeting, Heather Wakeley and her colleagues presented some preliminary data from 1505, and that analysis was done not too long after cisplatin and pemetrexid was opened as a new arm of that study. So only, I think, 12% of the patients had been treated with cis-pemetrexid. I am convinced that if that analysis were done today or, you know, as it will be done towards the end of the trial, that percentage will be much, much higher. So I, in my practice, use this doublet as well, obviously for appropriate patients with the appropriate histology, when in the past I tended to use more cisplatin and docetaxel. Any other comments about her and her as an individual, as a patient? I think Dennis summarized the issue as well. I mean, this is a lady who was 75, hypertension, diabetes, and had a pneumonectomy. Now she's on platinum-based, you know, chemo. And uh, I mean, I think anybody in her shoes would not be looking forward to mediastinal radiotherapy after she finishes this. So she just you could sense her angst, you know, that even though as all the other patients we saw today who had complete confidence and trust in their physician's judgment, and I'm sure she will go along with it, she just dreaded the thought that she still had a whole new segment of the treatment to go through. I'm curious, Dennis, as you see patients with lung cancer in the adjuvant situation, How often do you get into specific numbers, you know, sort of an adjuvant online kind of discussion, what's your risk of relapse with and without treatment in lung cancer compared to, say, in breast cancer? Almost never, unless they specifically ask. How about breast? And breast, I don't see as much breast cancer as I used to, but it's a lot easier to plug them into adjuvant online and give them a specific number. I mean, in the lung cancer population, it's been sort of a consistent absolute risk reduction in the 5 to 7% range, and it doesn't sound like a lot, which is why I'm glad when patients don't ask me specifically for the numbers in lung cancer. But in breast cancer, it's an easier thing to come up with, and, you know, I do use adjuvant online when the question comes up. It's interesting, Ruggieri, this sort of difference in culture, so to speak, in terms of giving numbers, and I'm just kind of curious if you think back 
to this woman's situation when she presented? And if she were interested in numbers, what would you have told her as a risk of relapse with and without chemo? So if she asked me, forget the radiation issue for now, then let's just approach this from an adjuvant chemo perspective. I would say that her likelihood of being alive with stage 3A disease three to five years after her initial diagnosis with no uh, additional treatment would be approximately 25%. And I think that there might be a 30% relative improvement over that number. And I think that the absolute benefit would vary then by another 5 to 10 percent points. You know, so I think it goes up to about 30 to 35 percent with adjuvant chemotherapy. And that's an optimistic estimate. What about the smaller node negative tumors? You know, again, kind of thinking of the breast cancer analogy in terms of how that's evolved. Where are we right now in terms of, you know, the concept of relative risk reduction even going down to smaller tumors? That remains another difficult dilemma and another topic in which patients can see, you know, 10 medical oncologists and sometimes get 11 different opinions. But I think the benefit is there. I think that's what the CLGB trial suggested. And I just don't believe that it is of the same magnitude that we see for patients with node positive disease. So that magnitude has to be explained to the patient in a way much more carefully than we do for patients with N1 disease or N2 disease. For the average patient with node-negative disease who still fit criteria for adjuvant chemotherapy, then I think that the absolute benefit, you know, in general, obviously there will be variations from patient to patient, is likely to be 5% or less. That doesn't mean I don't offer to patients or I don't treat patients with tumors that are, you know, above four centimeters in size or who have adverse histopathological features such as lymphovascular invasions. All of these issues we continue to take into consideration. And I think more often than not, we will treat those patients. But I think we need to be honest about the magnitude of the benefit that that treatment will have on the overall outcome.